Hey everybody, Mind Rolling is David Silver and Raghu Marcus, and we're back, Dave. Yep. For another um, episode. In, a good uh, one, too. Yes, we we've got... Band. We know that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we got a pal. We got a pal here, Chris Grasso, today. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, guys. It's always an honor to share some time and space with you. It's great to have you. Um, and the occasion, of course, is uh, important for us doing this in two ways. One is that Chris has a fabulous new book called Everything Mind. David's showing that on our video here that we're doing as well. And uh, that book will be uh, on the stands, as they say, on October 1st, which is the day you are hearing this podcast. But the other thing that we must mention, because we just can't let this float by, uh, is that the day that we're doing the podcast, which is um, a couple of weeks earlier than that day, the first, I believe, is uh, September 11th. Okay. And uh, David, I, I want you to take the floor here because uh, I think you really have something to share with us. Yeah, with Chris's permission to just take a little time before we talk about it. Oh, story. by all means, please. please. Which, and the book is actually in some ways connected to what I was about to say. I was in Midtown on 9-11 um, working on a, a music documentary and a, a post-production at Broadway Studios, which is Lorne Michaels' place. And um, I was very, I wasn't pleased about doing it there because it was so incredibly expensive. But um, the producer wanted to do it there and had the money, so we went there. And on the way, I took an express bus from Bronx into Manhattan, and it was a bus that goes straight into Manhattan. And it was all people in their 80s, if not 90s, who occasionally <laughs> get together and go to the museums. And I catch them, you know. And I was so discombobulated about this, this edit that I decided to meditate on the bus. You know how one does on planes and buses and so on. And, you know, I couldn't because uh, the very, very old lady next to me had a, an earphone in for a radio. And it was very loud, you know. And I was about to say to her, uh, you know, could you? But then I thought, I can't do that. She's, this is her enjoyment. This is her thing, you know. And then all of a sudden she pulled the thing out and said, ah, ah, a little plane has hit the building. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And I said, what, what do you mean, love? And she said, a, a plane, a little plane. I said, what is it, the world, uh, that thing? I said, oh, God, oh, that's awful. And then as I went further in along the bus, different people with different earphones, because they seemed to all do this, started shouting and screaming. And I got off the bus of 50th and Broadway, and I've been getting off there for 40 years. And it was silent. There was no sound when I got off the bus. Not a single sound. And I saw people streaming down the street. And I immediately knew. I looked in the sky and I saw these two trails. And then I smelled them. And they were brown and black mix. I knew nothing. And then I went to the studio and everybody was just hunched over a TV screen in, in one of Lauren's edit rooms. And very quickly, just like everybody else in the world... Uh, we learned about the catastrophe that had happened. And it was a couple of things I wanted to say about it. One was that it was one of those things in life that just completely stopped all thought. Everything just came to a massive halt in a second or two, and I was empty. I was just empty of everything. It was like someone dying or some terrible thing happening when just all the silly concerns, oh, this edit is too expensive, I don't know what we're going to do, we're doing it about the Baja men, nobody cares, it, stuff went away. And I experienced that, uh, that thing. And then for the next hour, uh, I walked the streets uh, of Midtown and um, observed the most amazing things imaginable. People hugging and crying and kissing in the street, in the middle of the street, there were no cars. Uh, a cop sitting on the sidewalk weeping. And, you know, you know, I went up to him and put my arm around him and said, you know, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not okay. 
And I saw a cop weeping. You don't see that too many times. And then I was lost. I didn't know what to do. I had no water. There was no water available in the, in the little bodegas. It had all gone. Uh, it was 86 degrees. I was just addled and empty. And I was on 9th and um, 57th Street, and there's a technical school there. And they'd emptied the school as I passed it. And it was mainly, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old African-American boys. And I was just looking around, you know. And one of these little kids came up to me and said, Mr., are you looking for a, a taxi? And I said, well, no. There are no taxis. He said, hey, man, if you stand over there catty corner on 57th Street, I've seen several taxis. I've seen them. So go over there. You'll get one. This kid just did that. So I went across the street, and there were no taxis. <laughs> and um, I stood there for a minute, and I was extremely concerned about my partner, who was over the other side of town, but no cell phones were working, and no street phones were working. It was, you know, like that. It was quiet and eerie or beyond words. And I'm standing there, and I see this shiny black stretch limo cruise right up to me, roll the window down. The driver looked across at me and said, can I help you? <laughs> so, I said, I was dumbfounded. He said, the only thing is, you got to get in the front, man. I said, okay. You can't drive up the West Side Highway. It's closed. There are thousands of people walking up the West Side Highway. We can't go there. He said, oh, no, no, I can do this. I get in the car. We drive to Riverside Drive, which, as you know, is parallel to the West Side Highway. And there was no one on it. And we get on it. He doesn't speak to me. And I said, man, I have no money, and the ATMs are not working. I can't pay for this. He said, no, 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 no. That's not why I picked you up, man. I said, why did you pick me up? He said, I'm searching for a, a kind face. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, I moved here, fine. From Guyana, 15 years ago. I worked for Morgan Stanley, the boss. You're probably dead now. He said, what is going on? I don't understand this. I am driving down Park Avenue. I get to close and I see the plane. I see the plane crash into the building. Explain this to me, man. And then he started to cry. And he couldn't drive, so we stopped. And I said, I'll drive, you know. And he said, no, 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 you can't drive, no, no insurance. I said, okay. I said, Look, you don't have to take me. He said, I'll take you home. And we went through two road blocks with National Guard. And just before we went to them, he saw them in the distance. He said, get out of the front, go in the back. I get in the back. We get to the roadblocks, and they stopped us with their, you know, with their machine guns and rolled down the window. And he says, VIP. This is a VIP. And they said, why? What kind of VIP? And he said, uh, very important man, very important man, and must get to hospital. Just lied let us through. He drove me to my door. <laughs> to my door. So by 12.30, I was in my house alone. It was very strange because there were no planes. I hear planes from where I am. There were no planes by that time. And I was like everyone else in the world. I was just looking at a television. But it, it just haunted me all day because I offered him. I said, come in, have a glass of whiskey. You may be in shock. I have a little, I have a little malt whiskey here. He said, no, 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 I want nothing. I just wanted a kind face. And he drove away, you know. Mm. And so what I got out of 9-11, apart from the utter horror and insanity of it, was, were two immigrants. I mean, all black people are immigrants. So I had a 13-year-old young boy take the trouble to point me in a direction that might help me. And then I had a, a, a man from Guyana who I never saw again who was brokenhearted, who helped me go home. So the day was incredibly mixed, you know, because it was the most horrendous day of all of our lives, I think. But, and I was there. But these two men helped me. And uh, Mr. Trump, if you're listening, 
We're all immigrants here. And we all deserve love, understanding, compassion, simpatico. And if you can't give that, go to hell. <laughs> That's my number. Wow, what a story. Never told me that story. Well, no, I, I, I keep it quiet. Hmm. Well, that's certainly, um, I would say this book that Chris has written, Everything Mind, has so much in it that can advise many, many people about how to be kinder, not just to everybody else, but to themselves, and more compassionate, and, and gives a lot of different pathways. So that's a good segue for Chris to... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, um, uh, how about, I'll start out, okay, because there's a, there's a few things in here that, uh, uh, that I love um, that I'll ask you about. Um, there's, there's something in this book that you talk about that I think, uh, well, 99.9% .9 of everybody can relate with. And that's uh, feelings of being inadequate. So I'll read a little bit. When I feel inadequate, I become aware of the complete absurdity of the mental conversation I'm having with myself. More importantly, I become conscious that underneath the internal bickering, there is an awareness witnessing it all. I acknowledge the negative self-talk and accompanying shitty feelings as arising in my awareness instead of identifying with them. Many spiritual teachers use the example of clouds passing in the sky, saying that we're the ever-present witnessing sky, and the clouds, temporary as they are, are our thoughts floating by. This to me, Chris, and I want you to elaborate here, because this is such an incredibly important concept for people to grasp around dealing with um, all of the incredible, wild, and um, disturbing thoughts that we all have day to day. So talk about this a little bit. And I have, I have a, a comment after you. After you yeah, make. yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. And the first thing I'll say is that it, it's a practice, you know, because I've been going through a really rough time this past month. And there was uh, a couple of weeks where I was barely able to sit and meditate because the pain was so intense. And I felt a bit hypocritical because I write things like that, though I also preface it right in the introduction by saying, look, I'm far from perfect. I'm a human being. I just do the best I can to be a little better each day. Now, I share that because this past Wednesday, uh, or um, Tuesday, Wednesday, know, a couple of days ago, I went to see a, uh, a really beautiful old Laos monk that I had met four years ago. He used to live in a cave in Laos for 13 years. And I hadn't seen him in quite some time. And a friend was kind enough to bring me with him to go up, drive about an hour to go visit him. And I knew that that would be good for me because I, I felt the only way I could start to truly get back into my meditation practice was in a group setting where I felt safe with other people. Um, and so we sat for 30 minutes doing a mindfulness meditation. And what I experienced in those first 30 minutes was my mind just going the whole time. Usually I'm lucky where for the most part, five, 10 minutes, my mind usually calms down on a good day and then I can spend the rest of the time just being there. This was not the case. But what I did witness was that, like I said earlier, it's a practice. And so what I noticed was from years of really putting this into practice, as these thoughts were coming up around all of the heavy things I have going on in my life right now, I watched myself anchor back into that witnessing awareness, that place that was not latching on to those thoughts and allowing them to then dictate my emotional inner experience. They weren't fun thoughts and there were still unpleasant feelings that came along, but I did not feed into them and, and just let them run wild with me. So that that's the importance of, again, remembering that it's a practice, being gentle with ourselves in the process, which is another thing I've had to really work with is cultivating that self-compassion. Compassion for others has always been very easy for me, but compassion for self is something I think a lot of us can relate to. It's, it's often the hardest to cultivate that for ourselves. So, you know, I, I sat through that and then we did a really beautiful 
30-minute walking meditation out behind the temple. There's only about six of us, and it was at dusk, and the wind was blowing, and the birds were chirping. And I remember that was, that was the first time I actually felt some semblance of true calm in many weeks mentally as we just mindfully walked back and forth. And I had uh, something Thich Nhat Hanh has said came to mind where he, something to the effect of walk as if your feet are kissing the earth. And that kind of became a mantra for me for those 30 minutes. And those were pretty much 30 minutes of, of actual peace that I had not felt in, in about a month. And then we went in and did 30 minutes of Mahasati hand meditation. And I noticed I went back to thinking again, but from that place of witnessing awareness. So long answer to sum up that long answer, practice gentleness, compassion, and patience as we work through this. And, and it really does pay off. You know, like I said, instead of getting caught in those thoughts and allowing them to dictate my emotional inner being, I was able to, for the most part, impartially witness them and, and allow them to come and go like clouds passing in the sky. Mm. And I'd just like to add just a little thing. Uh, of course, I know you mentioned Ramdas quite a bit in yeah. the book. And I'd like to add, uh, there's one thing about uh, the practice of witness, awareness, witness, that uh, can be a sticky thing for people. In, and that is that uh, they're coming from their thinking mind when they're witnessing. So it becomes uh, a self-referential thing mm. that happens. And that does not uh, allow for the spaciousness that one would want to get to. Sure. And I think, uh, and I bring up Ramdas because a few years ago he... He developed this teaching, which has really been a central part of what he's been uh, giving to people over these last few years, and that's called loving awareness. Yes. And and what the difference, uh, and I think it's an important difference, is that is that you do enough practice to bring your consciousness into the heart center, and. Uh, there is different methodologies about how to do that. Breath is probably the most uh, efficacious manner to do that, um, just literally breathing into that uh, center of your chest. And so at that point, when you, are then, um, when you then have thoughts of inadequacy is what, how we brought this whole thing up, and, you know, I'm feeling like a piece of shit and, you know, I'm no good. I mean, and I can't tell you, sitting right in front of Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji back in the day, how much that went on because he, the pure mirror was just absolutely too much for us to just see all of this crap that we had inside us. Um, so that went on a lot. I wish I had had that practice back then. Uh, we ended up, uh, you know, I, I can remember so many times Krishnadas and I ended up in the river behind the ashram. Uh, you know, bemoaning our fate and thinking, how could two crumbs of shit actually be in the, you know, I mean, we were, we got drama. We had drama going on. And Krishnas can get very dramatic, actually. Uh, so, uh, so, but the, so the loving awareness practice really does allow you to then come from and witness and do exactly what you're talking about. It's a little bit of a, a different perspective uh, right. when that happens. So I just wanted to throw that in there into this yeah. mix. And if I can say something uh, in response to that, because I, I don't know if it's Everything Mind or Indie Spirituals, my first book, but I do talk about Ram Das and the practice of loving awareness, mm. because that's a mantra that I've, I've brought into my life for years, and it has had profound effects. You know, that's where I'm taking a more conscious, proactive approach in the beginning, you know, uh, making the effort to say it and then you kind of anchor into it. But the, the most amazing experience I've ever had with the I Am Loving Awareness practice was at a Slayer concert of all places. <laughs> you know, I, I make no qualms. I still love heavy music. I'm a fan of it and that's okay with me to each their own. But I was at a Slayer concert. This was probably like three years ago. And I was using the I Am Loving Awareness uh, practice as they're playing. There's flames like on stage shooting up. There's people <laughs> moshing and slam dancing. And it's just a chaotic scene all around me. But within myself, my awareness is in my heart. And I'm saying, you know, I am loving awareness, not out loud, but it's just repetitiously going on. And I had one of those really beautiful experiences where kind of everything else faded away. 
And like Ram Dass says, you're saying it. So everything that enters your awareness is love. It's loved because that's where you're anchored. And so I'm looking at Slayer. I'm looking at all these people like aggressively dancing into one another. And it was all absolutely perfect in the most beautiful, loving way. (laughs) And so I just that's important to me to share because Mm. sometimes people tend to compartmentalize spirituality. And for me, at least in my experience, that's not the case. It's always happening. Yeah, the, the, the love. Yeah, it reminds me of something when you talk about I still love Slayer and heavy, you know, heavy metal and all that. When uh, we were making a record uh, with uh, Krishna Das uh, some time back, many many years ago, called "Door of Faith," which I believe is one of his best oh, records. Yes, it is produced by Rick Rubin. Okay, yeah. so. I mean, for those of you out there, by the way, go get that record because it is fantastic. It is not his usual call and response record. It is all mostly, uh, almost exclusively uh, uh, solo prayers and so on uh, that he's put to fantastic uh, melodic music. Um, So Rick is producing this simultaneously with another record he was producing at the same time. It wasn't Slayer. I can't remember who the group was, but it was equally heavy metal at the time, hard rock heavy metal. He was like, he was able to put his feet, one foot in one world and one foot in the other world. And he's a pretty conscious guy, Rick. I mean, he's very, very you know, uh, you know, he's a pretty, pretty great guy. And uh, so you're in good company there. Yeah, I just and wanted I, to mention that. No, great point. And I love Rick. I mean, from Slayer to Johnny Cash to the yeah. Beastie Boys, Jay-Z. I mean, he's worked with all the greats. And yes, he's a very spiritual guy. So there's another example, you know, yeah, so well exactly. said. Yeah, there you go. David. Yeah, I um, I appreciate the Slayer comment, too, because <laughs> I still have uh, preferences in my musical taste that some people might find surprising. But um, I just <laughs> I wanted to... Uh, use the expression as you do, abide in everything mind. One of the things that blew me away when I first got the, uh, the, the, the sort of uncorrected proof, which seemed to me pretty perfect, actually, of your book, was the title. That it's amazing, isn't it? That of all the things that have been said by thousands of masters and thousands of enlightened and conscious teachers and healers and sitters and whatever, I'd never actually heard that couple of words put together before everything mind and what's so brilliant about that chris is that um it, that is what it is and you can you and through the book you repeatedly you know sort of abide in it for us and what's so great about it is that the the sort of heaviness of that and the difficulty of grasping that is helped by the incredibly colloquial and self a non-self-righteous style of this book. That's why I encourage people to buy it. Because every so often, Chris, you, in parenthesis, will say something like, oh, that again, or did I really say that? Or <laughs> mindfulness, oh, my goodness. You know, and it helps because what happens, the essence of the, the sort of atmosphere of the book is that of, a, of a, a real person you could sit next to in Starbucks and have a conversation with. You, you wouldn't know where you were going until you'd left with Chris, but it gives you that feeling. And the idea of everything abides, sort of or abide in everything mind, sort of covers the, it covers the whole thing in a way. Because what's repeatedly said in the book is that everything is as it is. We used to say in the 60s, it's all perfect. It's all too beautiful, you know. That great uh, uh, Steve Marriott song. It's all too beautiful. That's what it is. But it's very difficult. It's not just an easy thing. I mean, you know, I just, uh, my rap at the beginning, I said something nasty about Donald Trump. I, I take it back. I take it back because, again, that's just a reaction. It's one thing to say, okay, everything abides and everything, everything abides in, in, in everything, mind and heart. And then frequently what people do is they'll say, I love everybody, but I think that guy's a cocksucker. <laughs> and that doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work because then you're taking a, what you're doing is you're pushing it forward and taking it back. You're pushing it forward and taking it back. What you stress in the book is that practice, steady, sometimes boring, sometimes incredibly difficult 
stuff. Sometimes it's blissful, but mainly it isn't. And you make that point a lot in this book, Chris, that if you're expecting bliss and granola and beads, leave the room. Is that any, what is going to happen to anybody's life? Anybody's life, you know, including Beyonce, including everybody. We've all got troubles. We're all human. We're all in this veil of tears, really, with a lot of joy mixed in. So I want, after that long preamble, I want you to, I want you to elaborate on that exact quintessence of your book. Everything mind. Mm-hmm. Tell people what that is. You can look at it a couple of different ways. You know, on the one hand, it's just another way of saying big mind or Purusha or the Godhead. You know that it's 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 all in one. Like the in the Upanishads, uh, Tatvamasi. You know, you are that. Everything we see, everything we experience, both manifest and unmanifest. It's part of it. It's part of the path. And it's it's coming to practice and bring awareness to that, to the fact that at literally everything that is happening in our life is part of the path. And like you said, maybe in the 60s, it's all perfect. Is that what it was you said? There were a lot of those. You know. Okay, yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of similar to that, even when it feels like it's not in a way it is because it's what's happening. So how could it be anything but that? I know it doesn't feel perfect. Like this last month of my life has felt anything but perfect. And being in that moment sucks and it's very hard to work through. But but that's all part of it. The, the hopes and triumphs and failures and fears and tragedies the, what we would consider good and bad, light and dark, it's all part of everything mind. It's it, Everything mind is like this container in which it all abides, it all arises, it all falls. It simply, as I say in the book, is as it is in this moment, and, and that's all that there is. It's it's everything. And, and, you know, of course, it's happening within the mind. Sometimes we're locked into the, the small mind. Sometimes we're more uh, in touch with big mind or everything mind, but it's it's all held within this component of everything mind, which is what I call it. But again, many different names for it. But I like to say everything mind because as I said earlier, a lot of people I've met and even I have had the tendency of compartmentalizing my spiritual life. And even spiritual is just a word. It's life, period. But, you know, it becomes, we have to put you know, words to things we experience. So we say spiritual, um, but, but all of it, as I say in the intro something to the effect of like from monasteries to stadiums, to soup kitchens, to skateboarding, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's all part of everything mind. And so what are we going to do with that? You know, what are, what are we going to do? The choice is ours. I remember I was speaking with Krishna Das on his podcast not too long ago and I said, I asked him something about like addiction, you know, and why are we, why do people go to drugs and alcohol from, from his perspective? And what, what a great answer. I wish I remembered it verbatim, but he's just like, well, where the fuck are we? What the fuck are we doing? You know, we're on this rock that's hurtling through space. We can't find an ounce of comfort. And unfortunately, most people, their entire lives will not come to know that there is another way, that there is a way to cultivate a greater, a sense of something greater than ourselves, whatever path you may find that through. Most people just kind of, they live their life conditioned by society. You know, the rat race, we're in the middle of it and sense pleasures and money and success. And, and as he said, most people, unfortunately are going to be locked in that for the majority of their life. And they will never come to know something like everything mind or again, whatever you care to call it. So that's a little about it. Hmm. That's great. You know, Krishna Das sometimes comes out with the most amazing things. Uh, recently, I, I was editing a, a video of his, and somebody asked him about, you know, violence and Nazis and concentrate some really heavy-duty question. And instead of just going, well, you know, they were just evil and poor Jewish people were murdered and gypsies and it was terrible and they were evil, he said an amazing thing. He said, I'm not going to judge that. I don't know where I would have been in those days, a young German in 1933. I have no idea what I would have done. Stunning statement. To oh, me. yeah. You know, because that embodies everything you're, you're, you're getting at in this book, which well, is 
you know, KD really, you know, he's a human being, but he's also reached that point in his life, I think, where, you know, he refuses to make it an us and them situation all the time. And, and that's really great for us, for all of us to hear that kind of stuff, because, you know, in your book, uh, you repeatedly talk about that. Uh, Raghav, let's. I think you had a question. So I do. Oh, yeah, you had a look on your face like a question was coming <laughs> out. You know? No, I have no well, question. I do. I, I, you have one? I do because, okay. Chris, you talk so incredibly about what, what you call interbeing. And I want you to talk about that because I found it very helpful when you were talking about what that is and why it helps to deal with this ACDC of suffering and joy and disappointment and triumph and so on. And you use interbeing as a way of traveling through this life to uh, recalibrate. So would you talk about interbeing to us? Yeah, well, that's, of course, uh, I attribute that in the book to Thich Nhat Hanh, who talks quite a bit about interbeing. And that's had a very deep impact in my life because a great source of my suffering, aside from the uh, alcohol and drug addiction was the feeling of separation and aloneness, you know, and I, and I think that's something a lot of us can relate to. And as I started to learn more about interbeing and the fact that on both manifest and unmanifest level, it's all connected. It's all literally interbeing at together. I mean, it's one thing to understand it intellectually, but as you actually work with it in a contemplative practice and, and sit with it in meditation and you start to really feel that connection, it's a pretty beautiful thing. It's not that it magically changes everything forever and you're going to sit in that place, but you start to have these experiences of not being this separate self. In Buddhism, you know, they talk quite a bit about emptiness where people think that's a nihilistic statement, but it's not. It's empty of a separate self. And we're literally interconnected, interbeing with all things. So I use an example in the book, another off left field, out of left field. Uh, same, maybe same concert. I don't remember, but a motorhead example. Okay. Mm. I just like to, you know, these are my experiences. So I have a photo pass and I love motorhead. And so I'm right up there, right in the front of the stage and Motorhead comes on and like one foot in front of me in this big stage, there's Lemmy and I love Lemmy and he has this beautiful Rickenbacker bass, one that I'd never seen him play. It had this really beautiful uh, leaf inlet carved into it, just a gorgeous instrument. And so the first minute I'm kind of like fanboying out like, ah, oh, it's Motorhead, Lemmy, wow. And I'm trying to shoot some pictures and then I'm sitting there and I'm just looking at this bass and I start to think about interbeing. And how that base came from, at one point, a tree. And that tree needed sunlight to help it grow and rain and a seed, you know, to make it sprout in the first place. So all of these things had to interbe in order for that base to become a base. And on top of that, there also had to be people that worked at the Rickenbacker factory to create that instrument in the first place. And those workers had to have parents that made love and, and gave birth. And on and on it goes, this interbeing, this interconnectedness of one thing after another, cause and effect. It's all happening in relation to everything. Everything is everything. It's all interbeing. So, I mean, we could spend a whole show talking about that, but I think that in a nutshell is a taste of, of interbeing. Mm. That's right. so great. Oh, right. now we have to, uh, we haven't said this, and, and we usually do this at the very beginning of the podcast, but uh, we've said that this book is available on October 1st, which is the day that you're, this today, when you're hearing this, it's today. It's time. Um, time is malleable here with uh, our podcast. Um, but uh, please go to Amazon and buy this book. Of Chris's, okay? It's a fantastic book. And uh, Everything Mind, go up on Amazon, and we have to say, Chris, go through the portal that is on uh, Mind Rolling, on our Mind Rolling page, or just go to mindpodnetwork.com. And we didn't mention that Chris has a wonderful podcast that is on the network. He's a network pal of ours, so he's got some great podcasts up there, and we should alert you to that as well and um, uh, just I'm just going to throw in one can I throw a crazy curveball in here 
with Can this. you please? <laughs> Do it. I've been having a terrible time with my dogs, okay? We're lucky. They're in the room right now, okay? Here they, there's, there's one over there. They're all uh, over the place. Kenji. Yeah. Um, and they usually get up and bark in the middle of podcast, which is a horror, right? Um, so we managed to, uh, we're doing something about this, okay? So everybody out there, if you got a dog that barks or that steals food or that jumps on people, <laughs> we, we now have Bark Genie. Okay, Bark Genie. Bark Genie is a supersonic, or not supersonic, it is a whatever, what is the hell? It's a bark deterrent, ultrasonic. Okay, if your dog barks, you press the button and they start, stop barking immediately. What? Okay, I haven't tried it yet, but I'm trying to get some batteries. But go to Amazon <laughs> and hit the portal and get your Bark Genie, okay? I have one I, I have to do that. I just had to. I'm so sorry, Chris. But no, you, I'm, everything I'm, mine first, and then the bark genie. Okay, uh, that's part of everything mine. Everything it's part mine. of everything mine. <laughs> Literally. Uh, okay. Wow. And they're uh, very quiet. I, I, am observing. It might be good for your cat, Dave, too, if it starts to misbehave. Um, I, that would meow, meow. Yeah. Right. I don't know about that. You know. Right. Well, biting you, it might stop that. Um, <laughs> I want to bring something else up in the book, and it's again, uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, I have something to add on to what you're saying in this book, um, can, it's uh, tangentially, uh, it's about the Buddha, okay? The Buddha teaches that the totality of life, including everything we experience, and this is completely uh, connected to what you were just talking about, your experience, um, everything we experience comes into being as a result of causes and conditions, which is extraordinarily important for, for us all to contemplate. It's through understanding this that we clearly see the interdependent nature of literally every single thing and how everything depends on something else, other elements and factors in order to originate in the first place, which is your whole is really uh, just the same as what you just described about that Motorhead concert and that Rickenbacker, right? Right. I mean, I love the, uh, the analogy. Now, um, so this is a very important concept from Buddha. And it's not that easy to really understand. I think your, your analogy with the uh, Rickenbacker bass probably can speak more to it than than some of the sometimes archaic uh, stuff that uh, you read of, of the Buddha. Um, it would take a real master and teacher to, to really go into causes and conditions, I think. So it struck me because I was uh, reading something today. David and I have a, a book that is our Bible, right? Yes. I know what it is before you say it. Really? I think so. I know you do. Uh, it's the hundred verses I, of advice. I knew you were going to okay. say it. You guys turned it on to me last year when we did That's right. our first part, and I read it too. Yeah, but the uh, the interpretations by Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, one of the great great lamas, uh, siddhas of the last century. I mean, on a par with the seventeenth karma, a sixteenth uh, karmapa. Who knows? But the seventeenth, he's pretty pretty damn good too so i'm reading this one thing and basically he says in it one prostration to any to a temple to a buddha to an image anything doesn't matter one prostration that's done with full devotion okay gives you the merit so much merit that every speck of dust and grain of sand underneath your body in that prostration would count as lives born into of, as a king. Mm. Just one prostration done with devotion. To me, I mean, I just heard that so big time, countering all of the mental kind of stuff that we get into and we're trying to learn stuff and we're trying to grasp teachings and and... 
and yet there's that one place. And where does that devotion, that pure devotion emanate from? But that heart space, which we talked about with loving awareness. And I think that that, um, what I get through reading, you know, through this book and, and your other indie spiritualists, is your heart space and, and related to your honesty. And that, to me, uh, is just uh, a value beyond the words that people can pick up in this thing. And I, it's just so, uh, I'd just love for you to talk a little bit about what that means to you, you know, outside of the book or anything, but yeah, sure. the, the, the ability to, uh, and, and this is, you know, when I first met Ramdas, if, if people would say to me, what attracted you to him? And I could say all sorts of things, you know, the love that those piercing eyes that I, when I met him is, you know, those stories that made me feel like, okay, I wasn't the only piece of shit around, you know, that kind of thing, but it was the honesty. So can you, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, as I write about, and you mentioned Ram Dass, so I've never met him through his writing and his his videos, has been a huge influence in in the way I present my material for just that. He's always been very open and honest, and that resonated with me right off the bat. And I think a big part of, aside from that for me, is I've been so beaten up in life. I mean, who hasn't? But I've really been through the ringer. I mean, almost died numerous times through the way I used to live. And I think in that complete brokenness, which <laughs> went on for many years, it really brought me to a place where once I, I came through it, what else was I left with, you know, but compassion. And I'm not perfect at compassion, but like David said earlier, you know, it, Donald Trump can go to hell. And then you quickly kind of caught yourself. And, but I mean, when you said it, I kind of nodded my head like, yeah, Donald Trump, but like I too will catch myself later. And it's like, for example, you know, when I write, I write somewhere in everything mind about the Westboro Baptist church or KKK members, or even with, uh, I think her name is Kim Davis, this woman all over the news now. And it's very easy to point fingers and, and feel hatred towards them. And I understand that because when I see these people and I hear what they're saying, I still like my, my chest tightens a bit and I feel my stomach turn because that's just natural. Like I, ugh, it's, it's very, ugh, just gross to me. However, I, for, for whatever reason, I guess because of what I've been through, I feel grateful that I can look past that exterior. I'm not making any excuses for their hate and ignorance. However, I put myself in their position of going to bed at night and whether consciously or unconsciously, how miserable they must truly be and how much suffering they must be experiencing in their life. Again, they might not even be aware of it, but to live a life where you have such anger and hatred towards other human beings, God, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, all I am left with is feeling compassion and literally wanting to give them a hug. And I know that sounds weird, but it's like, I, I'm sorry for their pain, you know, and, and the pain that they might not even be aware of, but my God, with, with even, again, just all I've been going through personally over this last month with, with my own stuff, it's left me back in, in a, a place of very raw uh, feelings of raw openness and vulnerability. And when I'm in that place, all I want to do is hug other people. And not because I need the love, but because I know that other people are struggling too. Not necessarily in the same way that I'm struggling but I think, I don't know if it's Plato, but somebody said, you know, be kind because we're all fighting a difficult battle, something to that effect. And how true is that? We all struggle. We all hurt. And I just don't want in my life to put more hurt out into the world and more pain and more separation and more finger pointing. And so it's, it's, that's been kind of a natural thing that's arisen in me. And then I found the spiritual path and that's what I have used through the last 10, 12 years to work with that and, and continue to grow in that and, and understand that um, more for myself and how I can share that with others in a way that hopefully will help and be of service. Love, serve, remember. You know, those are three super important words to me that I even have tattooed on my arm. Love, serve, remember. You know, like, so, yeah. yeah I, I mean... Be kind because everybody's fighting a great battle. It was actually spoken by Philo of 
Okay. Uh, Alexander, who's a Jewish mystic, a Jewish Greek sure. mystic, although it's been attributed to other people, but I traced it once. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it, what you're saying is so important, but I would add, and you would add too, and it's in the book, steadfast, steady practice is the only way you can take that from being a fake sentiment yeah. to being a, a deeply held sentiment. And I found that in my own life all the time that, that you know, I, I, my, my partner in life will say to me sometimes, stop. You know, do you really, do you really feel that badly about Bobby Jindal? What do you care about him? You know, why are you, why are you getting so angry at seven in the morning? You know, when she's getting ready to go to work, and I'm screaming at the TV, going, "This guy's a moron," and it's so right. But the truth of the matter is, I think that practice is the only way you can turn a, a word, a set of words, which sounds good, into an actually really deeply deeply felt sentiment and directive to your own mind from your heart. And I know that, certainly speaking for myself, I have fake about it sometimes. You know, I say, oh, well, I, I love you, I love you, and I really don't. Right. So how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with it by saying persistently, uh, eventually, that sort of rather, uh, there's a word for it, um, uh, ersatz is the word. When you create an ersatz sentiment that you think to be true, and then criticize yourself for hypocrisy. Remember that if you keep saying it, eventually you will believe it. Mm. If it's good. If your heart opens to it. And, and you know, Raghu and I have talked about this so many times. About the word practice. Which is kind of like rehearsal. You know. I mean, I know in my own case as an as a, as a, a aspiring musician. That if I don't practice, I'm dead. And the analogy holds. In other words, you want to play guitar or whatever I play, you know, blues, and I don't work at it, it ends up being thin and incompetent and unlistenable to. By myself, forget other people. And I think the same paradigm holds for practicing everything mind. Because you may not believe it at the first. And that's what's so interesting about your work, both in Indie Spiritualist and in Everything Mind, that you get very close to the reader. You're not at a distant place, you know. I don't think the Buddha was either, actually, but it is, you know, 2,500 years ago. Here we are, 2015, a recognizable human being who loves to live and yet at the same time is conscious of this being a dynamic you need. We need it because otherwise we're wretched. I am. Right. I'm bloody wretched if I'm completely right. full of anger, so I will fake it sometimes. You know, and sometimes it, something happens, you know, and it's great. I remember one time I was in my apartment on the Upper West Side and there was a street fair going on. And I looked out of the window and there was this nice street fair. And then I saw in the middle of it this politician called Mario Biaggi, who was an extreme right-wing conservative representative congressman from New York, who I loathed with incredible passion in those days, 1976 as well. So I thought, I'm going to go on the street and confront him. So I did. I dressed, I went down to 79th Street, and there he was. And I went right up to him. And, you know, and I've said this before about other people, I couldn't do it because he was talking to some children, you know, like 11-year-olds, I remember, and really being a sweetheart to them and showing real interest and looking them right in the eye, you know. And I'm ready to go for it, you know. You know, how could you be a Reaganite and how could you support the blah, blah, blah. I was blown away. I just couldn't do it, you know. And then he looked at me because I was looking at him. And he said, can I help you? And I, I just went to pieces, you know. I just had nothing to say because I saw humanity in the man, you know, despite his political diametrical opposing everything I believed in passionately. There was something there. There was something human there. And, and that was like a, a moment in time when you learn something, you know. But, I mean, even last night, I went to see uh, Roger Waters' new film, uh, which is now called Roger Waters' The Wall. It'll be released in a couple of months. It's a stunning thing beyond words. And I know Roger. I worked with him for six months. And he's not the easiest guy, but he's a genius. And what I loved about it, I didn't, the whole film was, you know, very overwhelming to me because I was sitting in the front row of this vast thing with this Pink Floyd music blasting into my ears. But there are the, 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 the concert, The Wall, is interpolated in this film with Roger's own real truth, which is his 
desperate sadness about his father and his grandfather who were both killed by two world wars. He didn't know either of them. So the whole thing is him going to the cemeteries where they are in Anzio in Italy and another one in France with his friend and he cries, he weeps. And then he gets drunk one night with a bartender talking about this, how he can't handle it. The terrible amount of death and destruction in those two world wars and he feels the terrible pain about it. And he opens himself up. And those of you who have opinions about Roger Waters, and I know people do, you should see this film because it's very moving. We were all very moved by it. He's beautiful in the film. He just opens his heart and talks about it. And, you know, um, everybody's got a heart. Everybody can open it. Practice and inspiration from men and women who have found words to describe how to do it. And again, I don't want to sound like a, an infomercial here, but um, this book is helpful. And if a book isn't helpful, or at least enjoyable, what the hell is it? I mean, you know, there's no point in reading it. You might as well just listen to music. So um, I know that one at the beginning of the book, you say this thing. You say, the process and progress involves waking up, cleaning up, and growing up. Talk about that. That is actually from uh, the Ford from Ken Wilbur, who right. I, 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 man, I read, I read the Ford when he sent it in, and I'm like, all right, book's over. Like we can all go home now. We don't need to read any further. I think he did such a tremendous job of summarizing the book. Yeah. Um, but that's a teaching that's very important: waking up, growing up, cleaning up. And he just talks about these three different elements that that we bring together on the spiritual path and the importance of balancing the three of them, you know, the waking up aspect of where we meditate and we do whatever practices, the cleaning up, which can be shadow work or, or whatever else we do. And then the growing up, which that's the one that he says is the toughest because it's, it's, there's not necessarily formal practices we can use to do that. It's more of, we need to bring awareness. And by growing up, he means you know, there can be people that are having, having these awakening or mystic experiences yet on the, on that level of, of, uh, say like uh, racism or homophobia are still very much in that place. Like things happen for people regardless at, at the stages and levels or at that Ken talks about. So that's, that's essentially what he's making the point of in the, in the forward that he wrote for the book is to be cognizant of these three elements, you know, try not to go overboard in one and uh, neglect the other. Just be aware of these three different things in your personal spiritual development, waking up, growing up, cleaning up. So yeah, that's, that's one of his teachings and, and I really appreciate that. Um, but I did want to say one thing going back to practice, just really quick, David, was absolutely, I, I think that is so important. And uh, one thing I've noticed for me, because like I said, when with the KKK people or, or whomever, I get that uh, stomach churning feeling and, and uh, what, you know, it's unpleasant and I have those thoughts. So it's not that it's a bullshit like, ah, oh, namaste, kind of I love you because I need to love you because that's what being spiritual is. But what I find is thanks to practice for many years, for example, uh, self-inquiry, which Ramana Maharshi taught, when, when I keep constantly looking inward, you know, and, and bringing awareness, uh, to the ego self. And I'm not here to be that person that says we need to destroy the ego. Like I'm not going on either side of that. You know, it's the ego is there. However, by bringing awareness to that, you know, who is it that's judging that person? Who is it that's angry at that person? You know, and, and of course we know that's the ego nature and I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. It's just by, by constantly bringing that into the practice it's almost, it becomes like riding a bike. So, and that along with shadow work, you know, when we start to look at the uh, unconscious shit that we have and we project onto others and good or bad, you know, shadow work involves both of it. But anyway, so that's something I should have noted before that I feel is important enough just to reiterate here is practice. Yes. And that it makes it a more natural thing, like the loving awareness practice. And you keep bringing that in and you start to experience loving awareness more naturally because you're practicing, practicing, practicing. So not to get off subject of the other question. 
there's something here that I, I want to bring up, um, and it's uh, a little bit in relation to Ken, who I'm not that familiar with, um, became a little bit more familiar with through the book. Um, well, the, the you start out talking about Ramana Maharshi and how he became self-realized, which is an extraordinary thing in recent history for um, uh, that we actually know the details of someone like that, a Siddha. I mean, he was a completely gone beyond, beyond duality being, lived, still able to live in a body, which is kind of a simplistic uh, definition of what that is, a Siddha versus a, a yogi saint. Um, and you say, you know, well, that's not something that happens very often, so you maybe better shouldn't count on it happening, that spiritual process is uh, is a long-term thing. Yeah, and I think long-term in this case is like a gazillion lifetimes, okay? Yes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, I don't mean just a few years. Yeah, it's a long, long-term thing, and... Uh, uh, and but in in relation to that and and also in relation to practice and I think this is uh, an important thing um, the one thing uh, Ken talks about nobody will save you but you you alone have to engage your own development contemplative development uh, there's all sorts of health available and all sorts of good agency to quicken this development but nobody can do it except for you so I'm a little, uh, and, you know, and I'm taking this out of context a little bit to sort of um, just talk about this one point, because what happens with a lot of people is, um, I shouldn't say this especially Buddhists, <laughs> Ramdas would like me to say that, but um, there is, uh, somehow we get a little bit too involved with the uh, self-effort and it becomes aligned with our ego and result-oriented Western psychology. And uh, and when when I hear somebody saying nobody will save you but you, um, yes, ultimately we have to do our practice. We cannot depend on somebody else's the teacher's advice, especially if we do not follow it. But in my own experience with. Um, what happened in India after following Ramdas there those many years ago? Um, for instance, Maharaji never, ever, not once. First of all, he he wasn't a teacher, so he he didn't teach us anything. I mean, but never once did he say to meditate. Not once. Siddhi Ma's told this to to Krishnadas. She said, "Krishna, who's a." Um, a great uh, saint herself that uh, has taken care of our Indian mother in, in India, uh, was with Maharaji uh, very closely for 50 years. Uh, she said, never once did Maharaji ever tell me to meditate. And we're like, on the other hand, we all went to the Vipassana meditation courses, which we've talked about before. How did we get there? It seemed like he wanted to get rid of us are you going to do the course, he'd say? And we go up. You know, and that was, it just seemed spurious. It didn't seem like it was anything but he wanted to get rid of us because he kept moving around and we kept trying to follow him. But in the end, that practice has been a foundational practice for so many of us. But I'll use the, so just to counter the thing of, and and I want you to comment on it. Yeah. But just to counter the, you know, that thing that we have in the West, we've got to do this. We've got to do this practice every day. I've got to sit there. I'm going to fucking sit there no matter what until something happens, okay? Yeah. You know, that kind of energy that we all carry, especially in the West, um, can be um, a little self-destructive. And I think that the analogy that I love best, and now I'm talking about, there is a, there, of course there's karma. We are, we uh, have to allow ourselves to go at the speed at which uh, we can become more awake. And uh, that's a, a truism. And we have to surrender to that and not, and, and not try to have our minds be where we are not. 
And at the and the other thing that I, I want to bring into this whole conversation around nobody but you can do it is grace. Yeah. Grace is extraordinarily important. And um and, and Christian us in, in one of our retreats we had uh, w- which we were talking about grace. Uh, to me, he had the uh, the most wonderful analogy, and that is, and and that takes what you're talking about throughout this book about practice and its importance, and which it is completely important. That practice is uh, the analogy is we are out walking in the rain, and the rain is grace, and the cupping of our hands to catch that water is our practice. Without that, we're just getting wet. So I think that that, you know, it's a great analogy. And there's a, a very, very, very subtle way in which that practice has to take place where it is not catching us into the same, uh, into an ego place. Right. So talk about it a little bit from your, your experience and just Abs- what we're talking about here. Right. I, I think I love everything you said. Uh, the grace of the guru is a very important thing to take into consideration. One of the things I make very clear in the book myself, and I say right in the beginning in the introduction, is I always encourage people to what I call be be their own spiritual scientist. Find the path, the method, whatever is going to work for you, and ride that train all the way home. For some people, it will be diligent practice. For others, it will be a more laxed course. But only we will know what is right for us, you know, by turning inward and really tuning into that. Like I shared earlier uh, in the beginning of this podcast, I hadn't meditated for like two or three weeks. And because I had to recognize, you know, meditation is an important part of my life, but I, I wasn't trying to be a spiritual superhero. You know, I was sick. I was also in a really bad emotional place. Maybe meditation would have helped, but for a few of those weeks, I could barely get up. I was just really sick and in bed. So I had to find a balance. So I know what you're saying when you say that Western, we need to go, 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 do, do, do. Uh, I know Adyashanti talks a lot about that in his early spiritual path. He was very, you know, progressive and I need to get this done. Uh, and we have that nature. Uh, and I had that nature very early on in my practice as well. But today, I'm, I'm grateful, at least for me, that I, I can find that balance of being gentle with ourselves in the process you look at someone like Eckhart Tolle, you know, who had that experience of almost similar to Ramana where he just, he had the suicidal uh, ideations. He, he wanted to kill himself and then he woke up, whoa, you know, and, and great. And then it, over the course of the next months, he just kind of sat on a bench and whatever. Cool. Most of us don't get that. Like I would love to, <laughs> wake, why, had, why didn't I get that? I've wanted to, I've tried to kill myself. How come I didn't awaken, you know, <laughs> karma, whatever. Okay. But so, you know, I, I'm a huge fan, fan, big time of Ken's work. And I, and I understand what he's saying that we do need to practice because what else are we going to do? You know, like, I think, I think that absolutely the grace of the guru is just as real as anything in the world, if not realer than anything in the world. But what else are we going to do with our life? You know, like when I was talking to Christian Das a while back when he was up in Ontario, he was telling me a story about, and I've heard him talk about this before, where there was a very great, uh, I think it was a saint, he said, in India, where he was mixed up with drugs and the saint just kind of tapped him on the forehead and that's it, gone. He's never had the urge to use a drug again and he's been awesome ever since. Well, fuck, why can't that happen to me? Like, I still struggle with that. I still have, you know, the desires and... Oh, you know, poor me, poor me. But again, so what am I going to do but practice? So, but again, as I say, and I try to make so clear whether I'm writing or talking, what I share, I don't share ever as a definitive truth. I share as my experience as a fallible human being, what has and hasn't worked for me. I hope that some of it will work for others and help them. But at the end of the day, you're the only one that's going to know what is and is not going to work for you. And that's the bottom line. Yeah. Perfect, and that's a perfect uh, um, image uh, of this book. Really, what you just said—it—it really a perfect reflection. Perfect reflection. Everything mind. Please go out and get the book, everybody. Go to Amazon. Do it through the MindPod Network portal, and we're all going to get a little piece, including you know, Chris. They buy the book on Amazon, right? 
Yeah. And then uh, we'll, we'll all share a little piece of that. Very small hey. shekels, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's good. It's good. And uh, David, um, thank you for joining us. I know uh, David didn't go into, uh, had this extraordinary, uh, horrible thing happen to him last night. And he's not in the greatest of shape. We won't go into it right now. Maybe on another podcast, because that surely can bring up a bunch of different things somebody, somebody around anger. Knock me on the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's just insane. Poor. Can I just have one thing about Chris's book? Yeah. If you know someone who's struggling and cannot get into the rather arcane or immediately jump into, you know, the sutras or into Ramakrishna, buy him this book. Yeah. Because the colloquial and friendly nature of it is very, very powerful. And if you do know someone who needs some sucker, needs some bomb, some tonic, something, but is not about to, you know, dive into that other stuff, this is negotiable, totally. So I would suggest, if, and we all do know people who are struggling, we're struggling ourselves, I would suggest this book right now. Okay. Thank you. Take that little, th Chris, go in and edit that little thing David just did, okay? <laughs> Create, uh, and then put it all over social media, and it's an endorsement from David Silver of Mind Rolling, okay? I think you I couldn't get it. a better endorsement than that about this book. Absolutely not. All right. Well, thanks you. Thank you for being here, Chris. And thank you, guys. We love you. Yeah. Huge David. love right back. <laughs> All the best. And we'll see you next week. Cool. Speak to you later.